You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, a good Sunday morning. Scott, good Sunday morning to you. This past week has been a whirlwind week of activities, you know, nationally, lo- locally, statewide, you know, with the Derek Chauvin trial and with uh, – you know, what's going on with COVID and the Montana legislature and cancel culture. And there's just so much going on that um, we thought it would be good to bring in one of our frequent guests, Eric Stern, who usually has very good perspective and commentary on all these sorts of things. And uh, he, he agreed to be on today. And uh, for our uh, listeners, Eric is former uh, senior advisor to the previous two governors and Assistant Secretary of State and served as a, a tax judge in Montana and has done a number of things. He's been around here a long time and uh, and has had his hand in many different uh, aspects of uh, public life in Montana. And uh, he's joining us today. Always a great guest, Eric Stern on What Do You Know? Back after this. Jay Farner here. Back with Supermensch, Eric Stern. Yes, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with our frequent guest. Eric was a former senior advisor to two governors, Governor Schweitzer and Governor Bullock, and was Deputy Secretary of State and a number of other positions in Montana over the past two decades. So it's good to have you back, Eric. Hello. So this has been a pretty busy week. There's a lot to go over. There's the things going on nationally. There are things going on in Montana. There's even some things going on in Missoula that uh, I'd like you to comment on, and, and uh, we're going to have a dialogue about all those things. So, you know, without further ado, let's get started. Derek Shaven, verdict this week, unanimous. What's your take on that? Um, I mean, I, I think the most interesting part is going to be the sentence. I don't think this verdict was a surprise. That was a hard video to overcome. It doesn't, wasn't much of an explanation that the jury seemed to have found. It's kind of hard to look at that and think that the guy should not, you know, should not be held liable in some way. And so, but I mean, the they filled was, up 11 they, days. They put him in prison for life now, or they can request it. You know, they can seek that, or they could send him away for, you know, uh, a much shorter term. And I think. Uh, I think that's the thing that that's the part that interests me. And I don't know what the right answer is, Um, whether he deserves, you know, whether he deserves some type of leniency because he's a cop and he's out there, you know, in the moment and simply made a mistake. Is any of it excusable or is none of it excusable? And is somebody like that does something like that, you know, is there should there be a discount off the sentence because he is a cop? you know, having to deal with people resisting arrest every day. And that's going to be the argument on the part of the, of a part of his lawyer, who, by the way, I don't think is a very, I don't think did a great job. No, at that I'm, mean, not sure what, I'm not sure what it mattered, but I don't, I didn't get the sense that he was a very, very good in the courtroom. Well, I mean, they had 11 days of testimony. And one of the things that wasn't included, as you know, was that he had already been um, accused 17 other times Right, and, and, that, that, and, that, and while that wasn't relevant, that didn't come up. I didn't watch no. it too much. The trial. That, no, it wasn't not, allowed. That's wasn't not allowed. Well, sometimes things like that are missable, but generally they aren't. And and and, uh, but 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 those do come up in the sentencing phase. Yes, they Fair do. When you sentence, and so yeah, that's um, you know, and it will come up. And I, I yeah, I think he's going to serve a stiff sentence. I mean, I don't expect to see him anytime soon. 
Well, I mean, what was shocking is that, of course, during the trial, it came out that, you know, there's eight minutes stretched out to nine and a half minutes on the guy's neck, which is as long as a quarter in high school basketball. When you think about it, that's a damn long time to be on somebody's neck. And, uh, you know, who yeah, and, stop I mean, I, yeah and, the, and, and the sort of the thing that everybody wishes they could have heard is his own explanation for what he was doing. But, of course, you know, he chose not to take the stand and we can assume you know, what's behind that decision? You know, his lawyer sits him down and says, right. okay, here are all the questions that you're going to get asked if you're on the stand by the, on cross-examination. And they go through them when it becomes obvious that he doesn't really have, you know, he doesn't have an answer. You know, there really is no good answer. For right. I think if he had a really good explanation for whatever it is you see in that video, my guess is he would have, the smarter thing would have been to get on the stand. And I, the jury can't draw the inference that I'm drawing, but you and I, and Scott's right. I think the primary reason they didn't put him on the stand, because as I understand it, he would then be open to be examined about the other times he had. Uh, he had that, yeah, to the extent to the extent that they they bore on his credibility. That's correct. Yeah. That's so correct. that that's probably the reason. That's another problem. That's another piece of it. And I don't and, think that. And the three other officers, I think, that were involved are now going to, uh, uh, you know, be coming to uh, uh, trial. Yeah, one of whom, as I understand it, one of whom had just started his job on the force that week. Yes. Yeah. And And Chauvin was training him. Yeah. Yeah. I I think those are going to be more politically complicated and difficult culturally because he was the lead. You know, they're they're following their boss, essentially. Right. I mean, it is a very tough thing to, you know, imagine in a setting like that where you know somebody is, you have to know somebody is doing wrong and you don't, and you feel, you know, paralyzed in doing something. I mean, this has been going on forever. There was a movie in the seventies with Al Pacino called Serpico where he turned on, you know, other police officers and he almost, you know, there was a real life story. He almost got killed, had to go into, you know, sort of uh, incognito. It, you know, there is, there is a, you know, fraternity and uh, it's almost like an airline pilot. Although in this case it was cracked open, because if you think about the the um, the uh, Eric uh, Garner case, the, the the guy who was right in, in New York, you know, about a decade ago, I guess it was down. Yeah, and he, you know, they, no one would testify against that cop. Right. They didn't even bring. They refused to even ask the, as I, if I recall correctly, they refused to even ask the grand jury for for an indictment. Well, probably that, the that, only change now they couldn't do that today if that happened. Right. In New York. The only reason this turned out the way it did, frankly, is that 17-year-old girl stopped and took the video of it all. I mean, they had it captured. There was no way to get around that. That wasn't, that didn't come off body cams. It came off an independent video that was taken, you know, covering the whole thing. I heard somebody comment yesterday that if, that if, if when his, if when his, um, if what became, if it went, if when it became apparent that his, he was in sort of being breathing, his breathing was labored and his heart was, stopping if they had immediately taken action and turned him over and tried to give him cpr and all the rest that somehow you know the question is what would the case look like then because a lot of it was they basically once even after he had no pulse he stood on his neck for another you know what was it another nine minutes or something like that another couple of minutes and they couldn't revive him so let me ask you the bigger question you know there are in the light of all of this and the other cases that have been going on you still hear from conservatives and and uh, other republicans that there is no systemic racism in america so what's your reaction to that well i think there's racism in america 
the third, the term systemic racism can, can refer to lots of different things. You know, there is some systemic racism in America. There has to be. But there's also, and there is also just racism in America. I don't know if there's, if there's inherent bias in a person. I don't know that that's systemic racism. It's racism. It's inherent, endemic racism in, in humans, as I think is, is, is the, you could argue, is the problem here and maybe maybe had something to do with Chauvin's, what Chauvin was doing and what his motivation right. was. I mean, there are people, for example, who believe, you know, rightfully or wrongfully that, you know, Jews or blacks or Hispanics should be barred from certain country clubs. We should allow ourselves to be completely white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and not allow anybody else into our club. Or the, our, I, I've seen you hit a golf ball. So that may, may not be the worst thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> But I mean, it, it, would you consider that Would you consider that systemic? Yeah, on some level, on some level, it is. Sure, sure. I'm, I'll give you an example. Systemic racism. You want systemic racism? I mean, I mean, you got kids serving prison, twenty year prison sentences in the South. Black kids for for having been found with literally like a quarter of an ounce of pot on them, or like right. a half. Right. That is systemic racism all the way. Those laws, that, that sentencing structure exists because it enables you to throw black kids in jail forever. So yes, there's absolutely, and there's many other examples of that. So for anybody to say there's no, there's no systemic racism in America, that's right. ridiculous. But do you think but, this but, is a throwaway? Go ahead. I was going to say, do you think this is a tipping point though for, to shine a light on, to your point, the endemic racism, let alone yes. systemic racism? I would, yes. Well, I would rather, in fact, to be honest with you, there's a ton of race of, of systemic racism that we don't talk about that I think is equally important. And it really it is actually more prevalent. I mean, I think stuff like that sentencing, like those like 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 the racial disparities in sentencing or the forfeiture laws where, you know, you have, you know, people that get a traffic ticket. They can't afford poor blacks. They can't afford to pay the ticket. The next thing they know, they get booted and they say, well, you, your car, you can get your car back for $500. Right. And then there's a late fee. And then by the time they, you, they can, they can get the money together. It's now seven fifty, And then there are court costs and, and that kind of stuff that is designed to prey on poor people. But, but really in some places in this country, you know, the poor are predominantly African-American. So yeah, I do. Well, talk about, but then how about voter rights? Look, it's happening right under our noses. Something you know a lot about being in the Secretary of State's office. Well, yeah, this- I mean, I don't know that, you know, I'm, I think that was, that's actually the, the purpose behind, you're talking about Georgia. The, Georgia. Well, but- 300, there are 300 bills across this country to restrict voter registration based right. on a false premise. It's basically, you know, a solution in well, search of a problem. A very, it's actually very rational. They are simply trying to change the laws so that it results in more Republican votes compared to Democratic votes. So it's actually it, what they're doing is is rational from a political perspective because they're basically just trying to change the system to change the outcome. Right. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, in this state, what Gianforte just signed a bill eliminating Election Day registration. Now, why do you think he wants to eliminate election day registration? That's where you can still register to, register to vote if you show up at the courthouse or wherever they've set up the central voting place, like the county fairgrounds in Missoula, for example. You can, even if you're not registered historically over the last 12, 13 years, whenever going back over a decade, you've been able to register to vote on election day. 
And now Gianforte and the Republicans have eliminated that. And the reason they're doing that is that the, most of that action or, or more of that action proportionally happens in Missoula and Bozeman, which is where the right. big liberal turnout is. So they're basically changing the laws to try to change the outcome. It's also requiring more proof of identity than it previously did. You have to have two four. Yeah, that's that's pretty minimal. I mean, I mean, just so you know, no, over ninety nine percent of voters, you know, vote in this state in this state vote with a with a voter ID. But it is it is still it probably makes a small difference still. Now I think this they're also saying now that student IDs are invalid. That right. concerns me. That I don't that yeah that well I, we would have to look into that and see what what the impact on that is. But it, but a lot of those kids don't have driver's licenses right. or or licenses in Montana, and I, I, we would have to look and see what these guys plan to do. And a lot of it is some of this is implemented by the current Secretary of State, who is also a big time conservative Republican, and I can tell you that she'll she'll do. You know, she will do the bidding of the of, of the Republican Party because she has before. So, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's and, and that's what they're doing in Georgia. And yes, the impact is racial because they're trying to prevent they're trying to reduce black turnout on Election Day. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. Even though it's never it's it's the it's what's whispered. It's never what's stated. The reason. No. Oh, 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 by the way, just 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 as an aside and for full disclosure, there are still a lot of states where voting is much more restrictive than it is in voting in Georgia right now. There are places where you have to register like six months or a year in advance. By the way, one of them is New York, which is a liberal state. Right. Right. So. So, yeah. you know, it's it, when you start to really look into this and 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 un, you know, peel the onion. There's a lot of really bad stuff that might be in places that you'd be surprised to find it. I mean, it just it just harkens to the to the fact that there should be just universal voter registration upon getting right. a social security card or whatever. And North Dakota has universal. They have always had automatic yes. registration. You just sort of if you're a citizen there, you just sort of your name is on the rolls. But of course, if North North Dakota is a tremendously one-sided state politically it's a republican right state. Right. 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 right right but let's, let's let's talk about let's talk about racism and exclusionary activities locally here in montana with indigenous people and people who are um you know living outside of uh our well, communities and, and and i think they're probably if you i don't i i don't know for sure about the current most recent election day registration trends. But my guess is that there, it is something that happens proportionally heavy on the reservations as well. And those voters vote, you know, let's say 75, 80% Democrat. And so, yeah, that is, that is similar to what you're seeing in Georgia. I'm, I, I have no doubt that when they're, you know, it's not just a bunch of legislators and the governor getting together and saying, yeah, this looks like a good idea. Right. They do the mathematical analysis. They look at the election returns and they say to themselves, what would help us the most here and why? And we are big vote. The, the turnout that we get, just like in Georgia, you know, you have a big black turnout election day. Democrats depend on the turnout in Missoula, Bozeman and, and on the reservation. And that's right. basically, that, that is the kind of the base. And um, yeah, my guess is that my guess is that Gianforte and company looked at this and said, yeah, it'll, it'll it'll reduce turnout in all three of those places or so they think. Eric, you've observed and participated in a number of legislative cycles in the state. I think most of our listeners know the legislature meets for 90 days, roughly every two years. So you've gone through this a number of times. And it always seems to me that prior to the cycle, prior to the legislature 
you know, um, meeting, they talk about all these things that they're going to do to improve everything. And then what ends up happening is there's a bunch of negative kinds of things, negative votes, negative bills. And this time it seemed like a lot more than I had seen before. You had the trans bill. You had affordable housing, you know, uh, cuts for Bozeman, you know, a bill to make sure there was no sanctuary cities in here. By the way, just so you know, those those bills have always, always come up before. But they are either killed by moderate Republicans or vetoed by or vetoed by a Democrat. Those two things are gone now. The moderates no longer have the power they did because the the sort of the right wing of the Republican Party has a majority in the legislature now. And, of course, you have a Republican governor. So that's really the, the, the new dynamic, Arnie. But most of the bills you see have come up in some shape or form before. The most troubling of all of that to me is, and I agree with you, I've seen them before as they've come up, is the, uh, you know, the subpoena of the state Supreme Court and the idea of the governor appointing more judges. So what's right. your comment I, about that? So, elect, you know, we elect judges in, in Montana. They're, they're elected. Um, but when there's a vacancy... There, the, the vacancy is filled by the governor with an appointment, and then at the next election, the, the, the appointee runs on his own or her own. But um, what, what's funny about this is when there, there, are, there are three bullet nominees for judges, district court judges, that are awaiting confirmation in the legislature. If the legislature leaves town without confirming them or votes them down, then – Effectively, Gianforte has three spots that he can nominate three judges for right off the bat at once. And that's a that's a fairly big deal for a governor to be able to have three appointments like that. They're not mm-hmm. Supreme Court. They're district court. Right. The way the law currently reads is that there is a, an independent judicial nominating commission that presents a list of nominees for Gianforte to choose from when he nominates these interim appointments. And to fill the vacancies. And the problem is that because Democrats were in power for so long over the last, you know, 16 years prior to Gene Ford to becoming governor, that commission is now full of Democrats. And mm. so Gene Forte doesn't want that to use that process. And so he is basically effectively he has sort of sort of directed the legislature to change the law so that he can nominate whoever he wants. And so that is the basis of this big beef between the legislature and the courts, because the legislature believes that the courts are 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 sort of, you know, using their muscle to try to defeat the new law. And and it it goes to the at the center, at the root of it is you have these openings and GM. Forte, what he wants in there. Wasn't so there supposed to be an independent judiciary? Supposed to be independent under the Constitution. Well, the Constitution says that if the governor fills an appointment for in a, a judicial seat, uh, a vacancy, in, in a, something like the language is in a manner prescribed by the legislature. So the legislature is supposed to decide how it all works and how the how the names get to the governor. And they're sort of just trying to abdicate that and and just give it to Gianforte, basically. And so. And so someone has sued to prevent the change in the law, saying it's unconstitutional. I mean, it gets a little complicated, but the easier way to understand it is it is very much a battle right now between a Republican legislature, a Republican governor, and actually a liberal, a more liberal court. Our Supreme Court is much more liberal than conservative. Um, and and they therefore they have the power to strike down you know, laws that they view as unconstitutional that the Republican legislature might pass and the Republican governor might sign. And so it's not 
entirely inaccurate to try to describe it as the reverse of what we're seeing nationally, where you now have a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, but a but a kind of a fairly right wing Supreme Court, right? And you yes. can imagine you can imagine them trying to invalidate something that the Congress passes and, and Joe Biden signs. That's what that's that's the way Republicans sort of view it here. And it's going to be this battle between them, and they're using their subpoena power to try to get get into the email accounts of these justices, try to look at their emails and see what they've been saying in you know in their correspondences, and 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 it's getting a little bit ugly. I'm not sure where it all ends. I don't I don't know materially if it'll end any place in a place that matters. Um, these guys, this court will still be the court, and the legislature will still be the legislature. And they can either pass something or not pass something, and the court can either strike it down or uphold it. And so we'll see. I want your perspective on something. So zoom out a little bit. Does Gianforte and his team slash group do they have the the wherewithal and the the infrastructure and the organization to to make a lot of these things happen? A lot of these changes happen, or are they kind of learning on the job? Uh, <clears throat> you mean you mean you mean enact to sort of enact the yeah. vision. Yeah, I mean, subject. To, look, they, they can do it. Subject to, and, and the backstop is if it if it violates the Constitution, then the, the the political backstop and the judicial backstop is is the Supreme Court, and and you know, a, a lot of times whether something is constitutional is in the eye of the beholder, mm. and the Republicans believe that if there's anything they do that gets struck down, that it's that it's just politics, and that the court is not really. That is just playing politics rather than being rather than calling balls and strikes. I think I think that's generally false. It could be true sometimes, but I think generally it's not true. And um, I, I do think you're or yes, he is going to enact a lot of what he wants. Um, you know, they're going to I don't know what it's going to look like when the legislature is done, but they're going to they're going to try they're going to try to cut the. For example, the, the the income, the highest income tax rate for the very wealthy. Right. You know, these are for people who live at the Yellowstone Club and make you know literally hundreds of millions of bucks a year. They're trying to cut the top rate for those the tax rate for those people. So you know that that's very real, and that will result. You have to raise that money someplace else, or else you have to cut services. So things like that. I think that they are very real, Scott, and and you are going to see them enacted. And, I, and Democrats, unfortunately, don't really have anything in the legislature to to oppose. They don't have the numbers to oppose to any thwart of any of it. No, no. And and now, now whether they, I, I know it, it's a Republican state right now. I mean, Trump won with 56, 57 percent of the vote. But I think that that doesn't mean that it's a state that necessarily is happy about some of these things that the Republicans, both the governor and the legislature are trying to do. And um, I think that's the place where the Democrats more sort of need to vocalize better and kind of post publicly, even though they can't stop it. So let me ask you to comment on this even more locally, Missoula. John Ang is running for a fifth term. No mayor has ever served that long in the history of the city of Missoula. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, that's, I mean, I don't believe in term limits. I think if you want to run for office, run for office. And if people want you in there, they should vote for you. And if not, they they should kick you out. I'm assuming that he's a good mayor. I don't live in Missoula, but he sounds like a good mayor. If, if he's been in there five terms, they obviously like something that they see. So he's never – I don't think any of his elections have been that close in recent history, have they? They haven't. No, they haven't. So there will be some – there will be more opposition this time than, you know, any time previously, and it will be around the issue of, you know, 20 years is too much. 
You know, yeah, and, well, and that's yeah. a fair, look, that's a fair point. I mean, that's always the argument that anybody that's, you know, that's the argument that any they made that argument about Conrad Burns, about Max Baucus. They're going to make it about John Tester. That's politics. You're in there long enough. Everybody's going to say you've been in there too long. You need to leave. And yeah, he probably I mean, the, the question is, that's not a race that a Republican can win, as I understand Missoula politics. It seems to me that it's either whoever wins the primary in the Democratic the Democratic primary. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Is it not? Although it's, is it? He's non. Is it? It's nonpartisan, right? Is it nonpartisan or is it partisan? It's uh, it's nonpartisan, but everybody knows. Oh, forgive me. So there is no. So there's not a partisan primary, but he's well enough known so that I'm assuming that it's. You know, you guys, you guys know more about Missoula. It's politics. fashionable to identify. I can talk to you <laughs> a little bit about Helena politics. Isn't that interesting? Though? Yeah. <laughs> On to our favorite topic of of conversation outside of uh, sports and. Uh, you know, and food is COVID-19. Oh, right. Montana's, you know, got, uh, you know, around 28% of the entire state is, uh, has been uh, received a second shot is fully immunized about mimicking the national uh, average. Um, anybody pretty much uh, that wants a shot now can get it here. You know, the numbers have gone down, but they're not, uh, they're not completely, uh, you know, we're not completely COVID free. We still have a couple of hundred cases a day and a couple of, you know, a few people still dying, unfortunately. Um, you know, what's your take from uh, over in Helena about all of this? You know, governor, governor got rid of the mask mandate. He got COVID himself and had to isolate for 10 days. So what's, so where are we at statewide? I mean, I still think most stores, seems to me the most stores, and certainly in Missoula, probably require, want you to wear a mask when you walk in there, right? You walk into yes. a restaurant. Or, so right. I'm not sure of the mandate, how, how important it is right now. I don't know. Um, if everybody, I think that once people have been able to get a shot and they've decided that they, some have gotten it and some refused, but if everybody's been offered it and some have refused, I think at that point it's okay to kind of open things up. And I don't know. I don't know why we should be worrying about those that have refused the vaccine, right? If if I decide I don't want a vaccine and and everybody else gets it, why why should they have to stay inside because of me? Well, right? there might be a couple of reasons. One is the fact that there are different strains of COVID that someone could pick up that's you know that would not. Uh, um, essentially, be protect the rest of the folks who've gotten the uh, the but, vaccine. But, but, that's, but that's a global. That's a global and right. thing. The strains don't hang around and stay in the borders of Montana. So it's no, like no, that's true. But you well, also have the strain on the healthcare system, hospitals, and whatever. If you if you only get up to forty fifty percent of Montana, and half of the state refuses, um, you can end up with spiking, you know, spikes in cities. But like you have now, Gallatin County, not just more than anywhere else. But you're not gonna you, you're not gonna shut down indefinitely because thirty percent of the population. No, doesn't. you're not. I'm not. I'm not saying that you would. At some point, it's like you you you've got as many. And unless you're gonna you know make a law saying they have to, and you're gonna go arrest them and bring you know you're not gonna do that. So what? How else do you solve? And basically, at some point, it will be clear how far you're gonna be able to get with vaccinations, and that's and then we right. have to move on as a state as a society. Right. Well, it's gonna be. It's gonna. I think gonna be decided indirectly by. Airlines and other people requiring vaccinations. That way, yes, and I think you're right. I think I think they're, you're going to see a lot. You're going to see it. That will increase the number of vaccinations, but it still won't solve it completely. 
No, I don't think so. I don't think this is the case. Scott, your brother just uh, had some interesting comments. Scott's brother's a, a physician in Manhattan, and, and what did he say about New York City? Well, he thinks New York City actually, and a lot of New York City, hit herd immunity, um, immunity um, at recently, and then with the advent of how many folks are actually getting vaccines. And uh, isn't the number spiking in New York today? Like, isn't the last three, four weeks? I thought it's going up in New York. My understanding is that the city's opening up now. So I don't know. Maybe that, that's the thing. Every day you react, we're reacting to something different, but that the city is really opening up and it's going to be fully open this summer. Right, aren't because you're visiting there. But yeah, Broadway shows are going to are supposed to be starting June 1st. You know, they're going to move pretty soon to, you know, much more uh, participation at uh, sporting events and concerts and public activities like that. But you are right. There is there is a, an increase going on now, even though as as the vaccines keep on rolling out, the variants are coming up. Supposedly, the the, the initial COVID nineteen, the the original strains, are the most deadly. Now, Dan was just saying, because well, we encountered a couple of people that were not getting the vaccine or didn't believe in the vaccine or were skeptical about the vaccine. He was saying, look, it's really hard for me. I understand your point, but I'm a doctor and I'm, I base my, my beliefs on science and I see how it works and I know how it works. And while it is odd that a vaccine could come out after nine months, it's like, you know, the, um, the uh, polio vaccine, uh, why am I blanking on his name anyway? Um, Jonas Salt, uh, that it's a miracle. In many ways, it's a miracle, but we see how it works and we see how it impacts immunity. We see how it keeps more people out of the hospital. And that's the biggest thing is, is the severity of the cases goes way down based on the vaccine. Doesn't, as I understand, as I understand it, once you've been vaccinated, the chances of you having a serious COVID illness are almost zero. Right. And that's the key. That's what doctors want to see is they don't want to see people in the hospital, right? <clears throat> more mild cases. Um, right. But if, you know, if you, if you don't get the herd immunity, you may end up, you know, getting into a situation. You see what's going in India lately. They've been having 275,000 new cases a day this past 10 days. And, uh, you know, things are going completely in the wrong way there. The hospital system, just like in Brazil, is completely overrun, you know, and uh, they didn't, they, you know, they failed to act. And you see the outcome of it. Well, we had, look, our, our hospital system was seriously taxed. And yes. it was always near capacity during this whole thing. Right. But I, there wasn't a lot of people being denied. You know, they weren't leaving people in the right. street. And so, sure. so, and so ultimately, I think we're past. Now that we have, let's say, between the people that got sick and have immunity from that and the people who have been vaccinated in Montana, I'm assuming you're someplace in the neighborhood of, what, 55? 50, right. And 60, something like So, So what's left out there on the table to sort of fill up hospitals in Montana is – is much smaller than what was originally out there to begin with. And so it seems to me that, you know, I also think, I just don't think, I think Americans are just going to want to move on. And I, this is going to be an issue that is just sort of becomes moot by behavior. I just don't, I don't think, especially in a state like Montana. And by the way, we've been fairly open for a long time now. I mean, we had kids back at school before most states, Right. We had restaurants and breweries and bars have been open for a long time. We haven't had a spike from being open. You know, you guys probably have the same experience. They're, they're, 
that Helen has had, which is restaurants are open. You wear a mask to walk in. You sit down. You take it off. When you're done, you put it on. You walk out. And Right, and the help would generally wear masks the whole time. Yeah, we've done pretty well using a kind of a, you know, open but with masks. And I'm not sure that, you know, and I'm not – the public seems to be, you know, pretty much okay with that. But, but at some point, they're probably going to get even sick of that. And I think at some point, it's almost become a political issue. Well, Eric, you actually – you sent something to Arnie and I before we got on the air today uh, that Bill Maher had talked about on his last show where – uh, I think his premise or his thesis was about, Doc, just give me the news. Give me the, you know, I want to know what's really happening. Stop with all the hype and all the and all the uh, histronics. Tell me what I have and tell well, me what I can do. I mean, I mean, I mean, we this the press, I think, was very irresponsible in the way they covered this pandemic because they seem to gravitate towards trying to cause panic. And and I think what Bill Maher was showing was the results of that. He showed some polling about how Amer- what Americans believe about the virus. Some some huge percentage of Americans believe that fifty percent of people that get COVID are hospitalized. Right. I don't even. It's three percent or two. You know, it's like it's and 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 they think that kids die are dying all. In other words, the, the, the reality is, if you're a child, there's almost no chance. It's like one in five million or something right. like that that you could you know that you would even be seriously ill. And so I, I think that Bill Maher's point was, that, you know, the press is sort of, they make their money by, they always have. on all, Sensationalizing on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's not good for the country. So it was, I don't think it's something that has been, been reported accurately in terms of the actual risk to different, to different people of different ages and different profiles, right. different places, you know, you know, and, 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 and I think, uh, you know, it has to be there has to should be a more accurate reporting of what the actual risks are. And I think to certain classes of people, it was much lower than than it was. I think they were saying like 78 percent of all the hospitalized folks with covid were um, determined to be obese, clinically obese. Yes. And that, that was the number one factor. Right. I mean, things like that, although there's we have a lot of obese people in this country, so I'm not sure right. that. That's right. And it's disproportionately affected minorities, right? Minorities, you know, yes, that's right. And so, and so, but I think ultimately, you know, you keep seeing, you know, you see these articles appearing and, and people share them and they, they get, you know, suddenly 10 million people are reading them in America. It's, you know, cause they, everything moves around so quickly nowadays, you know, there was an article the other day in the Washington post that, that someone sent me, you know, because they are somebody who's very susceptible to this stuff and is very fearful. And the article said that it's not safe to eat or drink on an airplane. <laughs> First of all, if you've been vaccinated, why would it matter that you're eating your mask off to eat or right. drink on an airplane based on what we know about the vaccine efficacy? So, you know, things like that, it's just sort of like, and all these variants, as you said, Scott, they move around faster, but there's, they are being currently being stopped by the vaccine in terms of, any the potential for any serious illness or death, and and they're probably less lethal to begin with, even for those who aren't vaccinated. So, right, and there will be a booster before the end of the year for almost all of them to try to mitigate the damage that the variants could cause. And by the way, you know what? When the when the CEO of Pfizer says, "Oh God, you know, I think we're we're going to want to see a booster twice a year," you know, I don't think you're being conspiracy. <laughs> it's money. You're not a conspiracy theorist by 
questioning what comes out of that guy's mouth because he's right. describing something that's going to bring him in a hundred billion dollars or whatever it is. It's like, right. uh, you know, I feel like it's, this is America. And you're like, you ask, you know, what kind of credibility does a person have? And, you know, uh, you know, so I, but I mean, heck I got the vaccine. I got the Johnson Johnson vaccine. When it first came out, it was, it was a pilot in, in Helena. They had like 700 doses. And, you know, I have a pre-existing condition. So I was able to, I was able to get it. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I am anti-unnecessary. I am anti the press not being accurate about what the risks are to, to the population. Well, part of the, part of the challenge during the process, we certainly have press that likes to sell, you know, media space and newspapers and whatever medium they're coming out through. But the facts continue to be not black and white. I mean, there's, you know, studies continue. That's a part of the problem of rushing out vaccines in a period of time that's unprecedented. While mutations are still going on, it's very hard to give a definitive answer. You know, the answer that we knew in April of 2020 isn't the same answer that we know now. But having a bunch of, you know, crazies in Montana who are anti-vaxxers saying they don't want the vaccine, the idea that they're going to be responsible for mutations when only 20% of how many people on earth have been vaccinated so far? What is it? 15 of the earth. Is it 15%? It's not even that. No, it's not anywhere close to that. Not even 10%. It's like five. So, so, and we are an open world. In other words, we don't, we haven't closed down our borders. So everything is happening everywhere on earth. It's a globalized situation. And the notion that, you know, Rachel Maddow does a piece that says, oh, my God, these, you know, some right wing nuts someplace are, are don't believe in the vaccine and they're going to cause mutations that are going to kill us. all. that's not that just doesn't strike me as as correct. Uh, maybe unless I'm missing something. So. Well, we have closed our borders down. I mean, truthfully, no, we haven't. What of course we have. You, you can't fly. fly a, you, you can't come into the United States if you if you if you have uh, covid. If you have COVID, but you can you can come, but yeah, but you can take it. You can take a. T- a COVID. Yeah, you have to quarantine. You have to quarantine, right? But you're still here, and it's not like anybody is enforcing the quarantine. If you're an English business, well, you, you, you can't get on. A, you can't get on an international flight to the United States unless you show a negative test. That's fine, but you can still have the COVID and show it. Right, and you're supposed to come and uh, – I mean, there are some precautions. You know, that that's place. not a brick. That is not a brick wall. I mean, you understand that's no, no, but it's it, it it's. It's not completely, uh, as you point out, uh, impenetrable. But a friend of mine just flew back from Switzerland with 30 people on the whole plane. I mean, it's not people are not coming in willy nilly. The people that came in, he had to be tested before. He had to be screened when he arrived. You know, he had vaccine certificates. You know, so, I mean, there are some restrictions going on. yeah. Yeah, totally. Let's switch gears for a second. We talked about this actually in prep for this meeting, which we talked about gun control. And just the spate of mass shootings that have been happening over the last month across the country. And, you know, I'm curious to get your take on this because we are in Montana and we know there's a particular point of view um, on gun control. And you've been close to that and you know it. Talk a little bit about it. Well, it's a tough issue. I mean, the, the number of gun, the number of semi-automatic or assault weapons, the number of assault weapons that are out there, the military style assault weapons that are the ones that are right. Know, discussion of, of the assault weapon ban comes up. You know, there are so many millions of them now all over this country that I, you know, sadly, I'm not really sure that any type of ban on, on the commercial production or selling of them in this country 
who knows if that will even have any effect. I support the assault weapons ban. And by the way, actually, I think a very slim majority of Montanans have always supported a ban on assault weapons. Mm. Not a lot of people that shoot these, you know, that get these AK-47s and run out into the woods and start firing, you know, use them recreationally. There's very few people that actually own those and, and are interested in them. And so, I, you know, but but again, I mean, being realistic, what will that do to, you know, in, to affect the number of massacres that take place? I'm just not sure. It, the, 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 you know, I think what you'd really need to do is probably look, you do what Australia did, and that's not politically possible in this country. You know, right. you, you, you know, round, you know, round up everyone's weapon and then, you know, start, register them. And that's not going to happen in America. There's no chance. So the question is, what can be done here that would actually have an effect on something? I mean, you can ban assault weapons, but I'm not really sure if the, the, the number that are out there already. I mean, I think you probably have to ban the sale everywhere, including the private sale, including resales of used weapons. You would have to, you know, it, it, it's a lot more than just saying, you know, that, that right. Smith, and Wesson, Smith and Wesson can no longer sell a certain type of gun. Right. And that's but a there lot. Are certain, there are certain gun, you know, registrations. Um, there are certain kinds of uh, um, not just on assault weapons, but other kind of weapons. There should be the same standard that you have to do to vote to be able to get a gun. Yes, but that's just not the way we are in this country. And the question is, how much is Congress really going to do and how much can they do, especially within the next two years? Well, they did ban it, as you know, you know, during the Clinton administration. There wasn't assault, but obviously it had a lot of loopholes and they banned sure. it, and lifted it. And then, you know, and, and again, I mean, the number, if you look at the number of guns that have been, the number of these things that have been sold over the last, you know, when Obama was president, when Obama was president, business was booming for these companies because they just tell every all these gun nuts, you know, who love assault weapons. They'd say, look, you got to buy it now because Obama's going to, you know, going to take it away. And everybody went running out and, 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 and business was never better. And, and the problem is that has a, per, a permanent impact because you now have so many of those things out there in the flow of commerce that it just creates it. I hate to say it, but I don't I don't know whether whether the fundamental problem can be solved at this point because there are so many out there sure. without something very drastic. And there's a general sentiment that it's more important to be able to exercise your Second Amendment right and own a gun than protect the lives of children. Right, right. And so, you know, I, I'm not very optimistic on America being able to do anything right now or in the near future. I think one day when the sort of if this becomes a more liberal country, for example, you know, you might see something else. But right now, I'm not really sure what what it all amounts to in terms of on the ground. There's some I'm, technological things that ultimately can probably be put in place that will have a that will have an effect on it. But we're not ready to. And and, 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 the, and and is there the political will in Congress to actually make it happen? I mean, you know, sure. the NRA and the NRA is still extremely powerful. And and you have all that too. So I don't talk know. Talk a little bit about talk a little bit about police reform, and let's move over to that. Especially given on the you know the day after the Chauvin verdict. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I you need police. Yeah, training police has to be. It has to reform has to always be taking place. Not just police, any organization, any 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 type of profession. You know, I mean, you you need continuing education and continuing training, and and you know, my 
By the way, one of my problems, in addition to the way George Floyd was treated by the officer on the ground, <clears throat> you know, they were arresting him for passing a fake $20 bill. And it's sort of like that raises another question, which is like, why are you harassing some guy? You know, I mean, Arnie, if you if you tried to pay for something with some $20 bill, it was clearly fake. The guy would just laugh at you and you'd walk out of the store and that would be the end of it. And even if a cop came along, they'd probably say, what are you joking? Just get out of here. And it's like, so again, that, that yeah, you need, right. you know, it's, it's more criminal justice reform is broader than just police reform. Sure. I mean, but what are you arresting people for to begin with? The stop in Virginia this past week of a lieutenant, an active duty black police lieutenant was because they didn't see a license plate in the license plate holder and failed to recognize there was a temporary plate in the back window, pulled the guy over. He said he felt uncomfortable getting out of the car when they told him to get out of the car. He was very calm. I saw the video, and then they maced the guy and dragged him out of the car. And the fact is these cops are under enormous stress, and they are, they are you know, there have been a lot of cold-blooded shootings of cops this last year and a half. And so sure. they, they, that's in their mind when they stop someone. Right. And so it just shows you, again, that is, and the reform is needed, is is to find a way to make sure that these cops do the right thing and, and take precautions so that something doesn't get escalated. To the extent an escalation can be prevented and the officer can prevent it, that is the kind of reform that we need, I think. In my early career, I worked in the criminal justice system. I, I ran delinquency prevention programs. I ran halfway house for ex-cons. I dealt with the U.S. Marshals, police department. I went to every federal uh, prison in the United States and interviewed inmates, knew the guards. There is not much of a different background between the criminals that you're going after and the officers who are in charge, who are charged with, uh, you know, protecting, uh, you know, and serving society. They come from the same neighborhoods. They come from the same kind of educational backgrounds. Mm. In most places, those jobs are not very high paying jobs. You know, you know, only the FBI and Secret Service and some of those agencies require college degrees or advanced degrees. Right. And, that's right. And at the same time, it's important to remember what, you know, what Winston Churchill once said, that when we sleep quietly in our beds, that because we can do it because there are burly guys you know, willing to yeah. violence on the enemy. These, right. We need we need cops out there keeping the peace. Yes, and 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 that's why you know. It, and, but but the truth is that reform, the right kind of reform, helps the police and the and the potential victims of police violence both. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. Our guest is Eric Stern, frequent guest, Supermensch Eric Stern to the What Do You Know family. Back after this. Arnie Sherman, a good Sunday morning. Scott, good Sunday morning to you. This past week has been a whirlwind week of activities, you know, nationally, locally, statewide, you know, with the Derek Chauvin trial and with, uh, you know, what's going on with COVID and the Montana legislature and cancel culture. And there's just so much going on that um, we thought it would be good to bring in one of our frequent guests, Eric Stern, who usually has very good perspective and commentary on all these sorts of things. And uh, he, he agreed to be on today. And uh, for our uh, listeners, Eric is former uh, senior advisor to the previous two governors and assistant secretary of state and served as a, a tax judge in Montana and has done a number of things. He's been around here a long time and uh, and has had his hand in many different uh, 
aspects of uh, public life in Montana, and uh, he's joining us today. Always a great guest, Eric Stern on What Do You Know? Back after this. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Back with our guest, Eric Stern. You know, in the last couple of years, Eric, we've had the, you know, the Me Too movement. We've had, you know, Black Lives Matter, which I always thought, by the way, should have been Black Lives Matter too. You know, it's, it's it's not the exclusion of anything else. But now that all is, you know, sort of changed into this cancer uh, cancel culture comments about anything that, uh, you know, seems to be politically or uh, societally inappropriate at a particular given time. What's your thoughts on cancer cancel culture? I can't even say it correctly. Cancel. I believe, I believe, in, free, I believe in free speech and I believe you're going to have a debate. You have to you have to you have to people. We'll have to feel comfortable raising raising. You have to hear both sides, and in order to get both sides of a debate debate and, an, and a free exchange of ideas, you can't have people afraid to raise the other side. And so, I don't like I don't like restrictions on free speech either. Le- I certainly don't like legal restrictions. But what we're dealing with now is a new is a new world where they are. It is sort of their cultural restrictions, and they're basically they're they are essentially under the threat of boycott if you basically express an opinion. Um, you know, and I don't like, I don't like that. And I also, you know, I mean, I think if I read correctly this morning, Home Depot, that the founder of uh, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons is in trouble because Arthur Blank. they're saying he's not doing enough to fight against, to help boycott the Georgia voting law, for example. Right. That's new. And that's a new thing. It's like you, if you, it's enforced, forced activism under the threat of boycott, you know, things like that. I don't, I just think that you should be able to have your opinion and express it freely in this country. And if you can't, then we've ended up not with de jure free, free speech restriction, but with de facto free speech, free speech restriction. And I think that we, we're in a, be, a worse place because of it. You, 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 the whole point of America is you should be able to state an opinion. And so, you know, I think it's very important to be able to do that. You know what, Eric? It's a great place to stop because we're going to have you in in a couple of months to follow. I just wanted to get started on that point, but we'll <laughs> we'll take a break. <laughs> well, we're going to see Arnie. Actually, I'll see you next week. Yes, we'll see you next week, Scott. Thanks again, Eric. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. 